We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Heal Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and joining me today is a special guest, Dom from the Horror House True Crime and the Macabre Podcast. Hello, good afternoon slash morning, depending (laughs) on where you are. (laughs) Maddie is super busy today because... Per usual, I have waited till the absolute last second to record this week's episode. (laughs) And special thank you, thank you, thank you to Dom for agreeing to rescue me in my hour of need. (laughs) No problem. I I couldn't let a fellow Cultivate family member, you know, struggle. I had to to jump in. (laughs) Do his his civic duty to save his fellow fellow network podcaster. Before we start this week's episode, just a couple of notes. I wanted to give a special shout out to our newest patron, Jenna. So thank you for joining our Patreon. It's very appreciated. We're happy you're here. And this is last call for the end of year sale that we're doing for the True Crime Indie Podcast calendar that we're part of. The sale ends on New Year's Eve. Use promo code OLDCRIMERS, all one word, at podcastcalendars.com. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly, if you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes or over on our link tree to get started today. I thought, because you know me, I like to be a little too on the nose sometimes when it comes to our topics. I thought we would close out 2022 in a blaze of glory. Okay. By discussing the Great Fire of London. Oh, <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm psyched. I actually, so I feel like I should know a lot about the subject. And they did actually teach us this in like history in secondary school. American listeners are just like, what the hell is secondary school? <laughs> I don't know what like that would be in America. High school? High school, probably. Yep. yep. Going to take a stab. I, I probably should have paid more attention. So I don't actually <laughs> know that much, and I feel like I should like give up my passport or something. I just took myself <laughs> of my citizenship. <laughs> I was going to say, you can no longer call yourself an know, Englander. I should, I should, You're right. getting kicked off the right. island. <laughs> I'll emigrate to America. It's fine. There you it's go. Where like seventy percent of my audience is anyway. So it's fine. <laughs> we'll welcome you. Give you dual citizenship. <laughs> But yes, I'm very excited. Yeah, this was a fun topic to dig into. It's been on my list for a while. And some of the sources that I used were 
very cool. So speaking of sources, information was pulled from the following. A 2022 Britannica article, the British Library, Climate in Arts and History, Eyewitness to History, The Great Fire of London, Historic UK article by Ben Johnson. There's actually two of those. History.com, History in Numbers, London Fire Brigade website, Luminarium, the Museum of London, and two Wikipedia links. Wow. Yeah. It's only when you appear on someone else's show and they go through your sources that you realize you really, I don't, I really don't (laughs) research enough. (laughs) Good Lord. (laughs) Well, to be fair, like each of these had like just a little bit of information. So I kind of needed that many to kind of put all Uh, the pieces together. Yeah. I will say the Great Fire of London website was really, really cool and it's interactive. So if you want to check that out after you listen to this episode, I highly encourage you to do so because it was super cool. Man, I need to go on that website. Yeah, like I might go back later and like explore it in a little bit more detail because I was like rushing through it. But I was like, this is really cool. (laughs) So that's my my ringing endorsement. And links to all these articles will be included in the show notes. Love. So as we've covered several times in the past, London has been the epicenter of some pretty awful shit throughout the years. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And in some cases, quite literally, such as the Great Stink of 1858. Yeah, yeah. Which we covered in episode 62. And all of the stuff that went down at the Tower of London. Yeah. Which we covered in episode 82. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the Whitechapel murders via Jack the Ripper, which are just a handful of... All of the awful things <laughs> that yeah, have happened in um, London. <laughs> London, yeah, London's been through it. I mean, like me and so Amy's first episode when she came on as, as co-host, we we did the Black Death. We did an episode all about oh, the Black Death. Oh, yep. And like I, I had sort of a. Oh, I knew that like, you know, you know, sixteen hundreds London probably yep. wasn't the place to be, but. I didn't realize just how like disgusting <laughs> it was like yeah. you know people would literally like throw their buckets of shit out their window and onto the street and yeah. like Amy like found a fact where like they would have to say look out below or look down below three <laughs> times before they threw the bucket of the shit and essentially like if you didn't hear it after the third time and you were still just chilling what whatever they did in the 1600s just like leaning against the wall for some reason looking cool Mm -hmm. and you didn't get out of the way it's just like well that's your issue sorry (laughs) (laughs) then you brought it on yourself really it's just like (laughs) what is this (laughs) sanitary laws were obviously a big thing in 1600s london bloody hell (laughs) at least they gave you three warning shots instead of like just jumping it (laughs) That's true. They, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I might just be a dick about it and just be like, <laughs> give one. And if you don't hear it first time, well, that, I mean, you're just going to get shoved and covered in shit, aren't you? <laughs> Yeet. <laughs> <laughs> Got to go somewhere. You're the one underneath the window. Yep. <laughs> this is your fault. It's not mine. Yep. <laughs> it has to go to the gr- somewhere on the ground. So Exactly. 
you're just standing in the place that it's going to land. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so today we're going to add another great to the list of not so great things that happen in England's capital, the Great Fire of London. Before we dive into how it started, I wanted to give you some context as to what was going on prior to the fire breaking out that kind of okay. enhanced what ended up happening. Okay. Add, okay. Added to why it became as awful as it was. Before the 1660s, homes and most buildings, which averaged around four stories high, which I did not realize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were constructed <laughs> using oak timber with not much changing in the design from when they originally built a lot of them back in the Middle Ages. Very old and very woody. Yeah. Just say that. Which is perfect. <laughs> exactly. Well, it gets better perfect. because not only that, but the timber was coated in pitch, which is a flammable substance made from petroleum, coal tar, and also plants. Uh. <laughs> London, what is you what is you doing? What is you doing? <laughs> and the roofs of these buildings were also mainly constructed with thatch, which consists of straw, reeds, or a combination of the two. That's wild. That's wild. So basically like the first house from Three Little Pigs. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, it's, it's, uh... Unfortunately, a wolf didn't come. It just yeah. got set on fire. Yep. <laughs> That's wild. I always find, like, just things in, like, the olden days, not to sound like a massive boomer. All <laughs> <laughs> the boomers listening. Sorry. It just, it's wild how things were, like, at one time. You know, even, like, you know, you take like the Wizard of Oz, for example, around that time period, like people were just like, oh, asbestos is fine. That's yep. not going to give me any issues. And it's just like now it's just like, <laughs> yeah, probably snowing asbestos is not good. <laughs> just, <laughs> just put it that way. And like, obviously, yep. like now it's just like, why would you make a house out of all of that material? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, dear. And obviously... Cars weren't a thing yet, so the main yeah. mode of transport was usually via horse or buggy. And due to this, several sheds and yards within the city limits housed a number of pack animals. Yeah. Animals that consumed copious amounts of straw and hay. I can see the problem now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you can see where we're going with this. <laughs> There's just a few things that are raising concern right now. <laughs> just a few red flags. <laughs> just a few. <laughs> and not only that, but there were a lot of people in London, which was England's economic powerhouse at the time, with a population of around 500,000 people. That's madness. Mm -hmm. I wonder like, what the population of London is now. I dread to think. I have such a love-hate relationship with London. <laughs> like, Unless I genuinely have to go to London, I will avoid it. At all costs. Good old Google. As of this year, 9,541 people. Jesus. <laughs> so, you wow. know, it's grown just a little bit from the just 1660s. <laughs> and London isn't even that big. Like, if you look at it off on like a, if you like Google, Google Earth London and you looked at it on a map, it's really not that big. 
Yeah, like when I was looking even at maps from the 1660s, it's not a huge yeah. place. And I can't imagine it's grown like that much since then cuz you're right, it's a pretty small city. Yeah. Like, when you look at it, I suppose you've got the city and then you've got sort of out outer London. But yeah. Still. It's, wow. That's Yeah. Was it 6 million did you say as of It's 9 million. Oh, 9 million. And 541,000 people right now. Good lord. Good lord. Not only that, but the summer of 1666 had been unusually hot. Like super hot and there was a drought because it hadn't rained for like weeks at a time, which I think is Ooh. unusual for for England. Like there's Yeah. You guys are pretty I mean, rainy. Yeah, I, we yeah. It it pretty much it rains a lot. Like it rains in summer, it rains in autumn, it rains in winter, it rains in spring. <laughs> it it just rains. And like so I I don't know what like an unusually dry spell would would constitute, but we do get a lot of rain and a, an average summer's day here is probably like if 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 it gets in the mid 20s and by that i mean not fahrenheit <laughs> degrees celsius yeah. that's like a good day like 20 25 degrees celsius is considered like balmy like everything just shuts down like the the trains stop working everyone's just <laughs> like struggling and so yeah, we 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 get a lot of rain and we can't cope with heat. I remember like recently we had like a heat wave. I think it was actually this summer we had a heat wave where it got up to like forty degrees Celsius in some parts, oh, like in geez. London, and everyone was just dying. And I do want to add that in England we don't have air conditioning in like oh. most spaces, so our houses don't have air conditioning most office buildings don't have air conditioning because we don't need it like mm -hmm. it's it wouldn't be cost effective for yeah for us to get air conditioning units so like it would just be like 40 degrees the only sort of way you could circulate air was to open windows in your house but that would just circulate the warm air around the house so mm -hmm. <laughs> it just didn't help so yeah yeah we we don't cope well in anything above the low 20s we, yeah. we struggle <laughs> <laughs> and so I converted it for our American listeners. So 20 degrees is around 70 degrees Fahrenheit and 40 yeah. degrees is around 104 degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah. like that's very hot. So back in the 1660s, fires were a super common occurrence, but they'd never been much of an issue in the past. Yeah. Like usually they were pretty small and easily contained so you could put them out right away. Yeah. That is... Until the morning of September 2nd, 1666, when a small fire started in the bakery for King Charles II on Pudding Lane near London Bridge. The bakery was owned by a man named Thomas Fariner. He claimed that he had put out the small fire, which originated in the oven. Around midnight, sparks from the dying embers lit firewood that was stored next to the oven. Oh dear. Yeah, and just an hour later, by 1 a.m., his house was engulfed in flames. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas. <laughs> I know. And although Thomas, his daughter Hannah, and his assistant T were able to escape by climbing out a window onto their neighbor's roof, 
their maid fell victim to the flames because she was too freaked out. She couldn't move. And she was the first person to perish in the tragedy. Oh, Thomas. I know. Oh, dear. What a, what a, what a, what a rascal. I know. I don't think he kept his job after that as the no. the <laughs> royal baker. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> just like, do you want to explain, Thomas? And he's just like, um, well, <laughs> I was, uh, <laughs> I was Oops. not in the shop at the time. <laughs> I was, I was away. <laughs> it wasn't me. I was sleeping, and <laughs> I blame my assistant. Man. Imagine, <laughs> imagine being Thomas and like. After all the destruction happened, you're just like, yeah, that was kind of my bad. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yep. It took only 30 minutes for the flames to engulf Thomas's home and move next door to his neighbor, Robert Tanniton's house. Within the first hour, the sparks had spread across the street and ignited straw in the stables of the Star Inn. So we're starting out strong. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is this fire has got out of control. Yep. Wick. When Sir Thomas Bloodworth, the Lord Mayor of London, was roused with the news of the fire at 3 a.m., he wasn't worried at all, having no real understanding of the scope of it. As he replied, quote, Pish, a woman might piss it out, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> What an amazing quote. I right? mean, that's that's more than someone would get. If someone woke me up at like 3 a.m. just being like, there's a fire, they might get at most an intelligible grumble. And then they'll <laughs> probably like roll over and go back to sleep. <laughs> someone will piss it out. Yep. <laughs> Fantastic. In no time at all, the fire raged out of control winding its way down Fish Hill from the Church of St. Margaret towards Thames Street, consuming 300 homes. Jesus. With the strong eastern wind off of the river aiding the spread, it slithered through the various warrens of tightly packed streets, hopping from rooftop to rooftop, the tips of which were so close together they practically touched. Once it reached the banks of the river... It quickly consumed the warehouses there that were full of combustible materials, such as lamp oil, tallow for candles, spirits, rope, and coal. Oh, great. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> this yep. Is, this is just like, I'm trying, I'm try oh, there's something in my mind. I know, but it, it's like, <laughs> this can't get any worse. Yep. <laughs> well... <laughs> Oh no! No, on, now it can't get any worse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, what's in the warehouses again? Oh, um... <laughs> Fireworks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh no! Some warehouses quickly went up in flames or exploded, depending oh, on what was inside. <laughs> Goddamn! By eight a.m., the fire had spread halfway across the London Bridge and was only prevented from spreading to Southwark on the other side of the Thames due to a gap in the bridge that had been caused by another fire 33 years earlier in 1633. What? <laughs> Why does, what's fire got against London <laughs> in, 16, in the 1600s? <laughs> what did London do to fire? <laughs> to fire? For fire, just to be like, you know what, London? <laughs> 
fuck you. <laughs> fuck you and your bridge. <laughs> oh, dear. All efforts to control the blaze failed, with terrified homeowners and renters attempting to quell the flames with buckets of water. As the fire continued to wind its way throughout the city with no end in sight, the people of London understandably began to panic. Many were forced to evacuate their homes, burying or hiding whatever valuables they were unable to carry with them. Yeah. And I read somewhere that a lot of the people would like move their stuff to say a church that was nearby. And then as soon as the fire approached the church, they're like, shit. And then they're running back to the church to try and grab their stuff and move it to another place. So it was like this game of kind of like hide and seek the ver- the yeah. valuables where they're yeah. continuously moving it. <laughs> Imagine just like, where are the valuables? Oh, it's, it's all right, Dave. They're in the church. It's, 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 it's fine. It's like, um, the, the fire is getting. Oh, that <laughs> yeah. church. And it's like engulfed in flames. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit <laughs> <laughs> shit just like um you, the the church that's like just about to be engulfed by fire right yeah. <laughs> so, ah fine right <laughs> where's, the, where's the other church <laughs> <laughs> at this time in history there was no established fire brigade to combat the fire and very little knowledge was involved in fighting the flames the main tools that people used to try and fight the fire included leather buckets axes and water squirts all of which according to jane rugg museum curator at the london fire brigade museum said quote had little effect end quote an axe i've just pictured this person just be like i'm helping and he's just chopping this fucking fire with an axe <laughs> Like, damn you, fire. <laughs> She's like, what are you doing? Get a bucket. <laughs> Why are you chopping it? <laughs> the equipment was stored in churches, and residents were aided by local soldiers as they attempted to fight back the flames. This is my favorite. According to the Fire of London website, quote, squirts worked like very large syringes. The nozzle was dipped into a bucket of water and the rod pulled out, sucking the water up. At least two people were needed to use it, one to hold the handles on each side, and another to push the rod in, squirting water out onto the fire. This was not a very efficient way of fighting a fire, end quote. <laughs> Sounds like the least efficient way of fighting a fire I've ever heard. <laughs> it's like bringing one of those cheap plastic squirt guns to <laughs> to an inferno fucking <laughs> old jim there with his super soaker 2000s don't so. worry guys i got this <laughs> right guys stand back the real helps here <laughs> oh dear meanwhile the citizens of london started a mad dash for the river thames as they attempted to escape the blaze via boat Others fled to the hills of Hampstead, Highgate, and Moorfields on the outskirts of the city, where the fire could be seen from up to 30 miles away. Wow. Goddamn. I think I have seen, like, I've seen, like, a, I'm assuming it's a painting. Um, I was about to say I've seen a picture, and I was just like, don't, 1666. 
definitely not a picture. I have seen like a, a, a painting. Yeah, like <laughs> everything is, is just engulfed. Mm-hmm. I can imagine you could see that for quite far. Yeah. As happens today, whenever a disaster takes place, citizens from surrounding villages came to view the blaze for themselves. Of course. Two of those who came to watch the devastation were Samuel Pepys and John Evelyn, who were both diarists, a.k.a. they kept detailed diaries that would later go on to be published. And they wrote dramatic and in-depth accounts of the events that took place over the next few days. John Evelyn, born October 31st, 1620, was an English writer, horticulturist, bibliophile, and diarist. He is most famously known for his writings on the scientific and technological developments that took place in the 17th century and how these linked to the social and economic progress of the people of the day. Fancy. Very fancy. Samuel Pepys, who was born February 23rd, 1633 in London, was a naval administrator in addition to being an English diarist. At the time of the fire, he was 33 and lived near the Tower of London. He also worked as a clerk of the Privy Seal, which is the person who works with the reigning monarch and keeps track of all the authentic official documents that they sign. Okay. So they're kind of in charge of, like, managing the royal seal and the documents that are signed. Having been made aware of the fire, he rushed to Whitehall around 11 a.m. to inform King Charles II of it. Samuel is noted as saying to the king, quote, Unless his majesty did command houses to be pulled down, nothing could stop the fire, end quote. Yep. The king quickly ordered all the homes that were in the path of the blaze to be pulled down in an effort to create a firebreak. Done with hooked poles, the strategy unfortunately had zero effect and the fire continued to overtake the felt buildings. Samuel was instructed to relay the message to the Lord Mayor, and he noted in his diary, quote, At last met my Lord Mayor like a man spent, with a handkerchief about his neck. To the king's message, he cried like a fainting woman, Lord, what can I do? I am spent. People will not obey me. I have been pulling down houses, but the fire overtakes us faster than we can do it. End quote. Wow. This is the same guy that was like, a woman can piss this out and it'll be fine. <laughs> man, man <laughs> definitely changed his uh, his stance now. Yeah. Now that he's seen like the entire city just <laughs> up shit creek, he's just like, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> disregard my earlier advice. <laughs> my bad. Uh, <laughs> when I said she could piss it out, I meant what I meant to say was we're fucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. By the time his royal command had reached the trained bands of London, the fire was too out of control to stop. In his diary from Monday, September 3rd, 1666, Samuel wrote, quote, About four o'clock in the morning, my Lady Batten sent me a cart to carry away all my money and plate and best things to Sir W. Ryder's at Bednall Green, which I did riding myself in my nightgown in the cart. And Lord, to see how the streets and the highways are crowded with people running and riding and getting of carts at any rate to fetch away things, end quote. I can't even imagine like how panicked and like flooded the streets would be with people yeah. just like oh, having be... no idea what the hell to do. 
Yeah. It would be pandemonium, wouldn't it? Like it would just be obviously there would be no control. It was just it would just be a free for all of people yeah. trying to get where they need to go. And there's probably, you know, hysteria as well in the street. And yeah, it would just be an absolute mess. Yeah. By nine AM on Monday, fire posts staffed by one hundred and thirty men each, thirty soldiers and one hundred volunteers were set up under the direction of James, the Duke of York, around the city's perimeter to try and cut off the fire and prevent it from spreading. The posts were set up at Temple Bar, Clifford's Inn Gardens, Fetter Lane, Shoe Lane, Cow Lane, Cripplegate, Coleman Street, and Aldersgate. King Charles II himself even joined the fire brigade as they attempted to fight back the blaze by passing buckets of water to one another. Fun fact! (laughs) Each firefighter who worked was given one shilling, which equates to about five pounds, 70 pence today, and five pounds worth of bread, cheese, and beer was sent to each fire post to ensure all the workers and volunteers were well-fed and hydrated. <laughs> yes, let's, let's when, there's a, when there's a fire and we need it putting out, let's, let's give people beer. <laughs> this is a great idea. Oh Jesus Christ! I mean, I mean, saying that, like the Thames was the main source of drinking water back then, and it was fucking disgusting. Yep. So, but still, I, I yeah, I can't imagine firefighters getting absolutely fucking trashed and then trying to put out <laughs> a fire. It's good. It's a good idea. <laughs> they just keep dropping the buckets of water. <laughs> it the gets like halfway like... through the line, and they're just like. <laughs> What the fuck? Move him to the back. (laughs) The king's just like, what's going on with you men? The the men are just like, well, you gave us loads of fucking beer. (laughs) Really? This is your fault. Come on. (laughs) Charles just like, I'm I'm just here for the photo op. I'm not here to actually put out the fire. (laughs) Yeah, he he brings in like a portraitist and he just like stands holding a bucket of water. (laughs) paint faster you're the real heroes (laughs) (laughs) Uh. a group of boys from westminster school were able to hold back the fire at saint dunstan in the east they spent hours fighting to save homes and the church with buckets of water ultimately saving the church good job kids yeah yeah 100 percent. the fire halted near temple church before suddenly springing back to life continuing its destructive path towards Westminster. <laughs> she really didn't like that. No, not not, not Westminster. <laughs> Anywhere but Westminster. <laughs> <laughs> the Duke of York, who would later go on to become King James II, ordered the destruction of the paper house to create a firebreak, significantly weakening the blaze. So good on you, okay. James. Yeah, that's some good, good thinking, using this noggin. Yep, considering, you know, it's full of paper. So (laughs) best to knock that down. I mean, why is there a building? (laughs) Uh. This just reminds me of like something from The Simpsons, you know, where it's like... Right. This this is just... (laughs) Some sort of just like cartoon. It is, isn't it? This seems like a You've Been Framed episode. Yeah. If, if you don't know what You've Been Framed episode, it's kind of like America's Funniest Home Videos, I suppose. <laughs> I love You've Been Framed. 
and it, it, it this is just like it just seems like it's calamity after calamity after calamity yeah <laughs> refugees poured out of the city with many passing saint paul's cathedral on their way the church was also caught up in the flames at 8 p.m that night and they blazed so hot the lead that lined the roof melted and poured onto the streets like a molten river covering six acres of land before the building itself collapsed. Good. Good. Now we've got lava in the streets. Yep. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> yeah. I can't even imagine, like, you're running past the church and it's just, like, melting. <laughs> yeah, like, what would you even think? Like, I, like, obviously, like, back then, people were pretty religious, weren't they? So, like, yeah. It would probably just be that and just like accuse it of being a witch or something. Mm -hmm. St. Paul's is possessed. The devil's taken over St. Paul's. <laughs> By the time September 4th dawned, half of the city of London was engulfed in flames. At 6 a.m., Cheapside, one of London's main streets, began to burn. Around the same time, King Charles II and his brother, the Duke of York, rode through the city to provide encouragement to those combating the blaze. Around noon, the fire reached Ludgate and Newgate, destroying the prisons there. Oh, oh no. So it's like, now we got criminals roaming the streets <laughs> that are escaping the prisons. I feel like someone needs to make like a bingo card of this. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> Has anyone got lava running the streets? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who's got criminals Whoa. on the loose? <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> Later that day, the fire hit its peak at 6 p.m. when it spread from the temple in the west all the way towards the Tower of London in the east. In some places, the walls of flame reached a height of 100 feet. Jesus. <laughs> Fuck. Wow. That's I awesome. can't even imagine. Like, can you... Imagine turning around and there's just like a wall, like a huge wall of flame just like behind you. Like I, I can't. That is crazy. You'd think it's like the end of the world if you, you saw would, something you? like that. Like you would definitely be like the apocalypse is here. Yeah. Samuel Pepys spoke to the Admiral of the Navy and starting the evening of Tuesday, September 4th, a last ditch effort to stop the spread was devised to use gunpowder to blow up homes that were in the path of the fire, dramatically increasing the size of the firebreak. Wow. I, I shouldn't laugh at that, but I don't know. I just, I could just picture being like, just like, you're just chilling, you know. Mm -hmm. Maybe the fire hasn't got to your house yet. Maybe you're very one of the very lucky few, and you're just chilling, doing whatever they do inside the house in 1666. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, Someone just comes to you and be like, um, so sorry to interrupt your your very pleasant evening, but I don't know if you've noticed there's a bit of a, there's a, bit of a situation going on. We're going to have to blow up your house. Is that okay? Is that, is that, okay? Is that cool? So I would grab your valuables. You're going to want to bury them at the church down the street and head for the hills. Just oh, Jesus, that's crazy. Imagine you pop out and then you come back <laughs> and you're just like, I'm pretty sure my house was like here. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least the valuables were in the church and then they turn around and the church is like raised to the ground. <laughs> well, 
There goes grandma's fine china, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. According to the Fire of London website, quote, gunpowder was used in areas next to the Tower of London, Cripplegate, Temple, Fetter Lane, and Holborn Bridge. Throughout Wednesday, the fire was gradually extinguished, though there were further outbreaks at Temple and Cripplegate that night, end quote. Wow. As you can imagine, the explosions had an unintended side effect of causing many Londoners to believe that in addition to their homes burning to the ground, they were now also under attack by the French. <laughs> Those goddamn French. <laughs> oh dear, we love the French, we do. Maybe not, maybe not during this time period, but... <laughs> not back then, but, you know... Not back then. But we're, we're, we're chill now, we vibe. Yeah. <laughs> we're cool. We're cool. We both love cheese, we both love bread, it's fine. That's it. That's it. Plus, they have Disneyland, and I can't be mad at them for that. The Tower of London was spared the flames, wrath, and the fire was slowly battled back thanks to a change in the wind's direction around 11 p.m. on September 4th. That night, the fire was successfully stopped at Temple, Holborn Bridge, Pie Corner, and Fetter Lane Corner. By the following day on September 5th, the fires were all but extinguished. Regardless, the king was evacuated from Whitehall and relocated to Hampton Court around 6 a.m. By the middle of the day, Samuel Pepys was able to walk through sections of the ruins. That evening, small fires continued to break out, specifically near Temple, Shoe Lane, and Cripplegate. And for several days following the start of the blaze, the ground continued to be too hot to walk on. Wow, Jesus. Yeah. By the end of Thursday, September 5th, Eight temporary markets were set up around the city to provide food for all the residents who had been made homeless by the fire. On September 6th, the final fire was isolated near Bishopsgate and contained around 5 a.m. After four days of ash and flame, only one-fifth of the once large city was left standing. I didn't realize it was that. I didn't realize that that much got burned to the ground. I thought... I thought it was less than that, but that, that's wild. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much the entire city, isn't it? Just yeah. gone, wiped out. Yeah. The blaze had claimed roughly 13,200 homes, as well as nearly all the civic buildings in the city, leaving 436 acres of land destroyed, including 80% of the city proper. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. Astonishingly, there were only 16 human casualties reported. Only 16? Only 16. That's crazy. Yeah, that's that's wild. That's why when you think of like how much damage that did to to buildings and how much land got destroyed, only 16 lives were lost. Yeah. Like I would have said far, far more than that. Yeah. Yeah, I thought there was going to be like thousands yeah, of yeah. people that were dead. And so when I read that, I was like, I mean, it's awful that 16 people died, but, like, considering how much more could have died. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, 100%. That's amazing. Absolutely. By the end, around 100,000 of London's residents were homeless, with a number of buildings left as burnt-out husks, including 87 of 109 parish churches, the Royal Exchange, Guildhall, St. Paul's Cathedral, several markets, 57 guild halls, 
and of course the jails. It's believed that by Sunday afternoon, that first day of the fire, 100 homes caught fire each hour. Jesus Christ. By Monday, so the next day, half the city of London was destroyed. That's that's crazy. And here's a terrifying fun fact. At the time that the fire broke out, around 600,000 pounds of gunpowder were being stored in the White Tower at the Tower of London. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Can you imagine if all of that went off? Fucking hell. Yeah. According to John Evelyn, if the gunpowder had ignited, it wouldn't have just destroyed London Bridge, but, quote, sunk and torn all the vessels in the river and rendered the demolition beyond all expression for several miles about the country, end quote. That's crazy. That is, like, was it 600,000 pounds of yeah. gunpowder? Yeah. Yeah, that would, uh, that would be a big, big boo-boo. Holy hell. Yeah. I can't even, like, when I saw that, I was like, you are shitting me. Like, (laughs) that is insane. Oh, my God. King Charles II provided the firefighters with a generous purse that totaled 100 guineas, or around 11,400 pounds today, to be shared amongst them. The property damage was estimated to be between 5 to 7 million pounds, or... 570 to 800 million pounds today. Although itself a huge tragedy, the fire did allow the people of London a fresh start. The disease-ridden, overcrowded, and filthy streets, not to mention all the rats, had been destroyed, allowing for a better city system to be established in the wake of the disaster. Considering there had been a plague the year before, the fire was actually a blessing in disguise. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. Fun fact, almost immediately after the embers of the fire had cooled, a French watchmaker named Lucky Hubert confessed to deliberately starting the fire. As you can imagine, justice came rather swiftly, and he was hanged almost immediately. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't until much later that it came to light that he was a poor and mentally disturbed man that hadn't even been in England at the time the fire was started. I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say that their reaction might have been, he's French. He must, mm-hmm. he must have did it. Like, hang him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, pr- uh, that's what I'm feeling. Uh, the poor man. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Didn't stand a chance, did he? King Charles II appointed six commissioners to redesign the city. By 1671, just five years later, 9,000 homes and 51 churches had been constructed. New buildings were made of brick or stone, narrow alleyways were forbidden, and the streets were widened. It would take nearly 50 years to rebuild the destroyed sections of London. That's mad. As the city was being rebuilt, temporary buildings were constructed to house the homeless, but these structures were ill-equipped and it wasn't long before disease began to spread, killing many. Of those who lived in the makeshift homes, many also perished in the harsh winter that year. Yeah. A man named Sir Christopher Wren was tasked with rebuilding London's churches. Born October 30, 1632, Christopher is one of the most acclaimed English architects in history. 
He rebuilt 52 of London's 89 destroyed churches, including what is considered his greatest work, the new St. Paul's Cathedral on Ludgate Hill. Construction began in 1675 and was completed 36 years later in 1711. In his honor, there is an inscription in the church that reads, quote, See monumentum requiris circumspice, end quote, or, quote, If you seek his monument, look round, end quote. Nice. Gotta love Latin. Yep. <laughs> A monument was erected on Pudding Lane in the spot where the fire started between 1671 and 1677 and continues to stand as a 202-foot-tall reminder of what sparked those four days of devastation in September of 1666. Yeah, I put a pun in there. (laughs) I approve. I approve. (laughs) It's believed that it was designed by Robert Hooke, but some credit it to Christopher Wren. The statue includes sculptures and engravings to tell the story of the blaze. In 1830, an inscription was removed from the monument that blamed the disaster on the, quote, treachery and malice of the popish faction, end quote. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Oops-a-doodle. 1667 was a year of rebuilding where people cleared rubble and a lot of the time was spent planning out the new streets, drawing up building regulations, and by the end of the year, only 150 homes had been built with public spaces like churches, paid for using money from a coal tax that had been put into place that year. Of the city's original buildings that managed to survive the Great Fire of London, they include, and I'm just going to kind of list them out, Uh the Old Wine Shades, which was a pub that was built in 1663, the Seven Stars, a pub that was built in 1602, 41 Cloth Fair, which has the distinction of being the oldest house in the city, built between 1597 and 1614, St. Bartholomew's Gatehouse, which was built in 1595, the Staple Inn, which was built in 1585 and survived until the Luftwaffe bombing in 1944 that damaged portions of the building. That's a good innings. The Guildhall, which had to have its roof rebuilt from scratch following the fire, although the building was originally constructed in 1411, St. Andrew Undershaft Church, which was built in 1532. St. Jill Without Cripplegate Church, which had several construction dates, such as 1394, 1545, and 1682. It was unfortunately gutted during World War II. St. Helen's Bishopgate, the largest surviving church in London, built in the 12th century, that was once the local parish church of William Shakespeare. Ooh. Fancy. Fancy, very fancy. The Tower of London, as we mentioned, which was built back in 1708. 74 to 75 Long Lane is another home built in 1598 that was protected from the blaze by the priory walls of St. Bartholomew's. The Hoop and Grapes, which is a pub that was built in the late 1500s. St. Ethelreda's Church, which is one of the oldest buildings in the city, built in the late 1200s and one of only two buildings that date from the reign of King Edward I. Mm -hmm. The old curiosity shop, which was built in 1567 and noted in Charles Dickens' tale, aptly named The Old Curiosity Shop. (laughs) Prince Henry's Room is a townhouse that was built in 1610, 
In the 1600s, it was the home of the Fountain Inn Tavern. All Hallows by the Tower, which is a church that was reconstructed in 1658, although it's been in that same spot since 675 CE. Wow. Right? I had to double check that because I was like, that doesn't seem right. But it's right. That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we, we... Our history goes back a long way, people. Yeah. A long, long way. 229 Strand, which is a townhome built in 1625, located where the Strand and Fleet Street meet. And lastly, St. Olaf Hart Street, which is a church built in 1450. It was saved from the fire thanks to Sir William Penn, who asked men from the nearby naval yard to demolish the surrounding homes to create a fire break. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the bulk of the building saved just happened to be places of worship. Yeah, I was about to say there's a lot there was a lot of churches in that in that list. Yep. A lot of churches. So lastly, I kind of wanted to touch on some good that happened as a result of the fire. The fire also brought about the formation of the first fire brigades yep. and the establishment of fire insurance. The first insurance company was formed by Nicholas Barbin in 1680 and named the Fire Office before it changed its name in 1705 to Phoenix, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the irony was not lost. On yeah. That. <laughs> to protect people's investments, insurance companies employed up to 30 Thames watermen to assemble and put out fires at a moment's notice. Metal plaques were created and affixed to the tops of buildings that were insured, not only to prevent them from being stolen, but to act as both an advertisement for the service and as a marker should the building burn down to show that it was insured. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Rumors and popular stories state that firemen employed by insurance companies would refuse to attempt to put out fires at properties that weren't insured by their firm. But there is little, if any, evidence to prove this. In fact, these companies had very strict rules that the men would be dismissed if they refused to attend every fire they were called to, regardless of if it was insured by their employer or not. Considering how quickly fires could spread, it was crucial that the firemen of different firms work together to put out the flames as quickly as possible. Companies, in an effort to distinguish themselves from one another and to act as a form of advertisement, each had elaborate uniforms they were provided each year. I can't even, like, imagine what these uniforms looked like. I'm I'm thinking, like... Feathers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, like, a Power Ranger costume. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's all covered in sequins. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> like you say, feathers, <laughs> everything, whole shebang. Yep. Their equipment was very basic at first, essentially what had been used to combat the fire in 1666, buckets, axes, and fire hooks, which were similar to boat hooks that were between 8 to 15 feet long. Fire engines were introduced in the early 1700s, but were rolled out slowly. A patent was created in 1721 by Richard Newsham who was the most successful fire engine manufacturer in the 18th century. It was able to provide a continuous jet of water, and some rivals named John Gray and Nicholas Mandel 
claimed to have submitted an earlier patent in 1712 for the same thing. Mm. Fun fact. In order to maintain constant water pressure to combat the fires, the men manning the engine had to continuously pump it, which was physically taxing and often required that a number of volunteers also help. Providing relief to the workers was a must, and since much of the water at that time wasn't really safe for human consumption, as you mentioned earlier, the insurance companies instead provided beer for their firemen, (laughs) and expenses for this beer would be claimed by the brigade foreman after tabulating just how much beer was supplied at any particular fire. (laughs) Just everything is just beer. I love it. (laughs) These men need need hydration. Uh, Beer. (laughs) I just picture like whatever the nearest pub is, just like getting the call and being like, all right, boys. And they start like rolling out casks of beer. Can you imagine? <laughs> they start sliding across like a bar or something. And they're just like, right now, let's go and fight this fire. <laughs> right. Let's go, boys. Yeah. <laughs> kind I'm kind of uh I'm kind of sloshed, but it's fine. I'm sure I can I've got my axe, I can chop it out. It's yep. fine. <laughs> I know how to use a hook, it's fine. <laughs> and you know how many buildings have fire escapes on the outside? Yeah. Since ladders weren't equipment that was frequently carried by the fire brigade, since their first priority at the time of their inception was to focus on the survival of the building and not the people inside, a fire escape society was established in 1828 to provide manned wheeled escape ladders. That's that's crazy. Yeah. How like at first it was it was the building. Like I could just picture it just being like at the end, after they've, you know, put out all these fires, they're just like, so the bad news is <laughs> we lost this amount of people. But the good news, the good news is we saved every single building. That's the important thing, guys. Remember, yeah. we're here to save buildings, not people. Yeah. I love how it took them 200 years to be like, maybe we should care about the people too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just saying. Uh. <laughs> These contraptions would be stored on certain streets in different places so that should a fire break out and someone was trapped, it could easily be wheeled to that location to rescue those stuck inside. Many of these ladders were stored in churchyards during the day and then wheeled to different streets in the evening. Yeah. Okay. The FES would later be replaced in 1836 by the Royal Society for the Protection of Life from Fire, or the RSPLF. And throughout London's rebuilding, lots of new regulations and innovations were made to prevent a catastrophe of the Great Fire's magnitude from happening again. In addition to the brick-faced buildings and widened roads, pavement and new sewers were laid, and the quaysides, or the areas near the water, specifically the River Thames, were much improved. Yeah. And as a last fun fact, the Lord Mayor of London was dismissed a month after the Great London fire, because people were just kind of over his bullshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, it wasn't his finest moment. No. Really, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. Man, man could have done a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the Great Fire of London. Ooh, and indeed it was great. 
<laughs> no, that was <laughs> no, that was really good. You know, like I said, it, it you know it was probably something that was was you know taught to us in history class, but you know, as a, as a teenager, you're not really sort of focused. You're sort of out and about. But mm-hmm. no, that was that was very interesting. I obviously wasn't I wasn't familiar with the fact, you know, the fun facts, and some of that was wild, mm-hmm. like. It just seemed like it was disaster after disaster after disaster, mm-hmm. which turned, which was, it was just like a, a chain of events. <laughs> it mm-hmm. just got worse and worse and worse and worse. Yep. But no, that was, that was very interesting. I very much enjoyed that. Thank you. If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me A Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. If you'd like early ad-free content, not to mention some bonus material, become a member of our Patreon today for as low as a dollar a month. Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ, and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jam, so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. And this week's podcast plug is the Infectious Groove podcast. And they say, we love music. You love music. Let's talk about it. From current events, crazy show stories, what we're currently listening to, and anything else that is on our minds, there may even be a special guest on to answer all of your burning questions. Join hosts Russ, Kyle, and Michelle every Monday and check out their back catalog of their past seven seasons. And we'll include a link to their show in the show notes. Seven. Mm-hmm. That's, that is a fair play. Fair yeah. play. Exactly. That is, that is highly impressive. So what's something good you'd like to share, Dom? What is something good? I will be starting a new job in the new year. Nice. That is that is good news. I am I will be getting out of retail after many a year in uh in in retail. I did say that this would be my last Christmas in retail. And it looks like it will be. So yes, that's very exciting. I'm going to be working for a boarding college where I live there's like an international boarding college so I'll be I'll be working there and that should be hopefully once you know the the DBS slash police check comes back and references have been contacted and all that stuff the wheels will be in motion and hopefully you know in the next sort of two or three weeks I'll be starting so yeah very good news I'm very happy for you that's cool thank you thank you very much what about you what is something good that you could share my something good. So I think I mentioned in the past that my family, they're all snowboarders. Mm-hmm. And there's a place we go that's really close to us. And my husband's actually a ski patroller there. And I've been trying to learn. Spoiler alert, I'm not very good. <laughs> but I'm proud of myself because yesterday I went with my husband I conquered my fear of heights and I went on the chairlift. Yes. I fell a lot, but you know, I did it. I went there and that's the first step is just put
putting yourself out there. And even though I wasn't able to actually board down any of the hills because I kept falling all the time, (laughs) I did learn the valuable skill of how to get back up after falling all those times. So it's not a complete loss. No, that is good. And as they said in, I want to say like Batman Begins, I know it was the first Christian Christian Bale Batman, the scene where he sort of falls down the well and the dad's like, why do we fall? And he's like, to learn to pick ourselves back up. Yep. So no, that's amazing. I did see actually in the Slack chat, you you might have said about you going, going boarding. I'm not sure if it was yesterday or it might have been sort of one of the times that you had got. So yes, I am very proud. Thank very you. proud, very happy. I will definitely say that I, so I, when I was in the States at camp over the summer, we did a, a trip day to like a ski, like it was like a high ropes course. Mm-hmm. And in the winter, it was, it, it was like a ski sort of place. And they had a, a chairlift and I'd never been on a chairlift before. And my God, it was utterly terrifying. Yeah. I don't like, <laughs> it's the scariest thing in the fucking world because you're like, going over rocks <laughs> like it's just like if this falls yeah like, and it would get to like every so often you would have like the posts and you'd have the wheels that it would go over mm-hmm. and it would like jerk and it would shake around and it would swing a little bit and oh my god it, it was horrendous yeah <laughs> it was awful yeah yeah it was pretty terrifying i did tell my husband as we were heading home, because I get I get in my head a lot, so then I'm I get very yeah. stubborn. I get very down on myself, yeah. and I said, next time we go, maybe I just need to be like a little bit tipsy, <laughs> so I'm not as in my head, and I can like more go with the flow instead of just <laughs> being like, fuck, 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 shit, like the whole time, <laughs> like keep falling down. So, but uh, it's it's. It's good that you went out of your comfort zone. Yeah. I think that obviously our comfort zone is a good place and, and you know, we, we try and avoid getting out of that zone. But it's it's good that you put yourself out there and that's I think that's the main thing, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, you might have fell over a lot or it might not have been as smooth as you would like, but the main thing is you tried. Yep. So. And it was my first real time doing it, so I need to remind myself oh, that go. No one's good at stuff the first time they do it. It takes a while to get yeah. good at things. So practice makes perfect. Exactly. You know, listen to my listen to my first episode because <laughs> that was my, that was fucking too, yeah. dreadful. <laughs> that was awful. Mine too. And yeah. look at me now. I'm I'm a I'm a semi capable podcast host. <laughs> look at how I've blossomed. Look at how I've grown. <laughs> I don't sound utterly terrified anymore. There you go. well on that note let's shut her down looking for more content you can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com if you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode not to mention bonus content and funny memes make sure to follow us on twitter at yieldcrimepod and on facebook and instagram at yieldcrimepodcast on tiktok of course you are follow us at yieldcrimepodcast A great way to support the show is to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods. I know there are some other ones out there, but I'm not as familiar. (laughs) And this week's review comes from Bert E. the Podmaster on Apple Podcasts. Nice. And it says, five stars. 
Really enjoyable take on true crime. So thank you. Nice. If you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramp Word segments. I don't know when the next Tee Public merch sale is. I used to get emails. <laughs> I don't know anymore. But when I find out, I'll put it on the socials and then you can be like, oh, it's a sale. And it'll be like a nice little surprise. It's a fire sale. <laughs> but they won't actually be on fire and ashes they won't when you get them. <laughs> no one will be trying to put it out with an axe. It's all going to be fine. Or by peeing on it, I guess. <laughs> or by peeing on it. <laughs> it's not like when you get stung by a jellyfish. <laughs> and on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Dom. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. Awesome. I got that right. <laughs> you did. <laughs>